0: It's Lehman Pascal here on the Integral Stage's Love the System interview series, where we're exploring social, technological, political, algorithmic, and economic systems, or what our community inanely but usefully refers to as the lower right quadrant. Today, I'm talking with Brian Robertson, who incidentally has the same name my father had when I was a boy. He's an author, businessman, spokesperson, and founder of Holacracy, and I'm hoping he'll help me think through some general principles of collective intelligence. Hi, Brian. Hey, great to be here. You ever watch the show, Dr. House? Yeah, I loved it. What struck me about that show is it's a group that gets results, but they have a very unpleasant time. Uh-huh. That's kind of the opposite of what a lot of experimental collectives do, which is they generate a mutuality that can even feel like they're part of an immersive higher intelligence, but they don't necessarily translate that into protocols that get anything done.
1: Yep. So, yep, that's for sure.
0: What's your take? Do you think groups that... Um, do share a vibe, a sense of almost transcendental, patriotic relationship to each other and their team. Are they more likely to be effective or is there very little correlation there?
1: I think there's a polarity there. And I think what we see is it's hard to integrate the polarity. So, you know, you focus uh, like Dr. House on on just bottom line results, getting effective uh, you know, work done. It's so easy to do that if what you're willing to do is sacrifice the, the sense of, of collective, of, of team, of uh, the individuals, there feeling fulfilled and meaningful and higher purpose and all that. But on the other hand, if you, it's, it's easy to get that. It's easy to have a hippie commune if you don't have to get anything done, right? If, if there's not shit to do, it's easy to feel great about each other, right? Like I have all sorts of social events and we don't have to get anything done. So we get deep connection, it's easy. But I, I, I do think that uh, if you can integrate that polarity, you can actually have more of both right? There is more intimacy, more depth of connection available in the kind of structure where you are getting shit done together. That, that, that builds something that, that's just not possible. It builds a depth of intimacy and connection that I have yet to figure out how to get without adding that element and vice versa, right? You can get more done, way more done if you have a team that's almost of one mind, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> one mind with many voices, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a polarity for sure
0: when um When in your life did you start to see that polarity you know or or maybe the gap the dynamic gap between those two different sides of collective functioning
1: so my background is in software a uh, tech background I started that very, very young as a child, and when I first entered the working world as a software architect and engineer, it, it didn't take me long at all to realize the the things that were getting in the way of Uh, the technical challenges I was trying to solve were not technical at all. (laughs) They were the human challenges, the human system, the, it was almost like the organization was built to resist change. So I kind of out of necessity at first realized, well, damn, like I want to build really amazing, incredible software with a group. And to do that, I've got to focus on the human dynamics. I've got to focus on the human system because that's, what's limiting the technical now. And, um, and that awareness kind of grew. I was, I was 18 at the time in this, this job and, over the next several years, I started moving into management positions and, and really trying to figure out uh, the, the architecture of the human system stuff. And, you know, that's been an ongoing deepening journey for me in the 20 some years since um, just really, really getting the, 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 the interconnection between the two, right. They're so related. Um, and it's, it's, it's I, I know you started the framing by talking about lower right. And it's, it's, that's how people often view holacracy naturally as a structure for the lower right, but it requires as much lower left work to install this, this operating system, this, uh, you know, this framework, if you will. Um, So, you know, when I do work with a company, it's not lower right work, right? It's actually all quadrant work. It's, (laughs) you're going to challenge people's meaning-making frames. You're going to challenge their behaviors and you're going to challenge the culture, right? In addition to challenging or changing the structures. So they're so intertwined and the more done this work, the more I I, I see them as things that you can look at from different perspectives, but you can't really disentangle them. And trying to is is self-limiting. They're so interwoven.
0: What's um, What's the biggest challenge in terms of building up the sense of shared meaning and trust necessary for starting to implement these systems?
1: Well, that's exactly the thing. It's not that you do that uh-huh. before starting to implement these systems, yeah. right? That again is looking at almost like they're separate things and you need a ground of culture before you can change the structure. And And in reality, what we do is dive into all at once, right? Like you're gonna need to change both. And the way to do that is by changing both simultaneously hand in hand. And in any given week or, or month even, you might focus more on one or the other, but you're, you're being mindful of, of all of those, those quadrants and you're looking for where are the constraints and what needs the most focus. But it's a dance, you're, you're dancing between them, you're moving in all of those and you're, you're helping transform in all of those all the time. So, you know, people ask all the time, how do you get ready for something like holacracy? And my answer is by doing holacracy, right? <laughs> how do you get ready for martial arts or, or music or any practice? Holacracy is a practice, it's not a mental model, it's not a theory, it's a practice. How do you get ready for a practice? By doing it, right? You don't become World Cup athletes in soccer by practicing outside of playing soccer until you're finally World Cup ready to go. No, you start as six-year-olds on a soccer field, kicking a ball around, looking like a mess, and you learn by doing. And, and I think that's true of any kind of deep organizational transformation uh, whenever you're bringing a new practice in, but especially one that's changing the paradigm and the entire meaning-making frame.
0: Seems like there's a couple of different approaches to learning by doing, right? There's the old-fashioned uh, throw you in the water and you learn to swim. And then there's, I mean, I took my friend's young daughter to her swimming lesson and they determined she was too young for swimming lesson. And what they taught her were the component subskills, how to turn her head, how to move her hands. So when she came back next year, she would have those all ready to go. So what are the the, primitive underlying skills that people could practice that would put them in a position to be better able to start the practice of holacracy?
1: For me, that's less about skills and more about growth. Um, So The correlation I do see, whoever's bringing Holacracy in, that person, well, one, just positionally, they have to have the power to change the way that part of the the company actually operates at a deep level. So it's really hard to bring this in if you're just a frontline person who has no authority to change the way a team operates. Now, if you're a manager, that may or may not, you may or may not have that authority. If you've got a lot of political capital and, you've, and <laughs> here's where results come in, you are known for generating good results. Then you probably have the ability to say to the broader company, I'm running my team my way and we will get the results, but don't micromanage us. You know, Leave me some free reign. And so, so the person needs that positional power. Yeah. And then internally that person bringing it in that that uh, often it's a CEO you know for a whole company although it could be a department head or a team lead or whatever but th- that CEO or whoever needs a certain amount of openness self-awareness uh, so these aren't skills per se on a horizontal frame they are they are a vertical component and it's not needed by everyone at right. all there's not a vertical requirement here across the board it's of the person who is bringing this in, and changing the way they use power from an old way to a new framework. That person has a, a certain developmental prerequisite, right? There's, there's a, and it's, it's as much about health, healthy growth as about any specific stage of growth. Although later stages do help um, to some extent if it's healthy but it's, I, I wanna see that person with just a, a willingness to question the way they think uh, the way they lead, right? There's, there's a healthy internal curiosity uh, there. And then there's a capacity to see systems and work with systems in some way often, or they're going to miss what this is really all about of doing. So um, for me then to answer your question, prerequisite, at least for that leader, bringing this in, yeah, um, it's just keep growing, man. Keep, <laughs> keep doing your own self-work, whatever that means to you. Uh, and, and especially shadow integration work health show up as the healthiest version of yourself. And then the highest capacity version. And for everyone else in the company, there's much less prerequisites. It's more just about, I mean, it helps to have some openness. Sure, of course. And beyond that, show up and learn by doing. Uh,
0: You were in the position of being the uh, authority moving into a different kind of organizational structure. So what was going on in your life that put you in a position where you had enough healthy growth to be ready to try that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I also learned and grew <laughs> largely by doing. Uh, holacracy <laughs> shaped me as much as I shaped Holacracy, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, um, you know, for, it's it's interesting. I almost see um, two broad polls or categories here. Some people grow through like traumatic upbringing, right? Like they have just, uh, and that doesn't always lead to growth, but post-traumatic growth is definitely a thing. Uh, And and I had the opposite. I just had an incredibly um, non, well, I wouldn't say non-traumatic. It wasn't trauma in a big sense, right? It was really healthy and supportive, but still really challenging. I dropped out of every school I was in. Um, I was an entrepreneur starting very young. My first business was about 13 um, started coding uh, when I was six. I learned to read on software development manuals, challenged every authority structure I was in. That was for me, my preparation for this. Um, and I had a very supportive mother who raised me and like really encouraged, realized that was the right path for me. So I got a lot of practice at, at uh, the young, immature version of challenging authority structures, very young <laughs> and, and really seeing how they worked. And I, I think that did produce a lot of growth along with the support and by the time i entered the the working world i was i was just ready i was ready to to kind of i don't know work at that that more system level um, and i was still young and immature i started you know i, I uh, yeah i started my my software company that led to holacracy when i was 21 and i was I, lots and lots and lots of youthful immaturity and arrogance was was part of that journey for sure And then to some extent, reality just kicks the shit out of you sometimes, right? Like I had bills to pay and customers to satisfy and they were vocal and loud when we didn't do a good job. And I had, I had some co-founders who really challenged me. And, um, I think, you know, surrounding myself with those kind of people and communities sure helped a lot. And that's still to this day, what I try to do in life. I have an amazing community around me that both supports and holds and challenges when I need it.
0: Were there, um. Were there examples of other attempts to do organizational shifts that impressed you that you were sort of surveying at that time and evaluating? Yeah, I I uh so when I started
1: my software company, I intentionally made it a laboratory, right? I wanted to find a better way. What was driving me was like this 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 quest, this question. There's got to be a better way to, to organize. What is it? And I had no idea. So um, we just went and experimented and I, I read every business book at the time I could find. I tried every new process or technique or theory. Uh, that's when I got into integral theory and it was 20 years ago, almost. Um, and, and through that, I mean, there were so many like, uh, and they were often practical. I often found early on that like the internal self-development techniques and practices I loved and were great, but the bigger block to, to being in the kind of system I wanted to be in was was often, there was often a mistaken goal in personal development communities to focus entirely on the personal development and miss these other aspects. And I realized that pretty early and started focusing on what business processes can we can we change and how. So I started experimenting with decision-making methodologies and governance methodologies and uh, even just personal organization. Like early on, getting things done, David Allen's work. Um, he would go on to become uh, one of our early adopters of Holacracy and a board member of my company. Um, but his, his work, if, if anyone doesn't know it, Forget about my work. Go go read David's book. Getting things done. Uh, it changed me. Uh, I, to this day, people ask me, you know, what my spiritual practices are or whatever, and my first answer is getting things done or GTD as it's called, uh, because it is a mindfulness practice. It's about how you focus your attention and organize. On the surface, it's about organizing your actions and projects. It's a personal productivity system, right? But it's not. It's an attention management system. It's it's about how I relate to my own attention. It's a meditative process. And that was powerful to realize those two went together, right? I could have a tangible practice that I could roll out across my whole business around how we get work done together, how we organize our projects, our actions, our, our you know everything going on, and it was, it was a spiritual practice a meditation practice at the same time. And as that was big. I, I experimented with other things, sociocracy for a while, realized that really wasn't what I was looking for. It was more consensus based and, and had that ethic kind of built in in ways that I, I found very limiting, but at the same time, it was a step on the journey and it taught me a lot. And there are still aspects of it that I was able to, to kind of integrate into my thing. Um, So there was that. There was a lot of Peter Senge's work and learning organizations. It's just lots and lots. I have a whole history on the website, uh, Holacracy.org. If your listeners are curious, they can read more about the different methods, but so many.
0: What do we we need to take forward from the consensus model and what are its limitations? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the wisdom in that. Is, is that
1: there are different perspectives and there's often some wisdom in different perspectives, right? I love Ken Wilber's quote, uh, nobody is smart enough to be 100% wrong, right? It's a beautiful quote. Um, So there's a wisdom there The 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 trap, what I call the tyranny of consensus, is where everyone has a voice because we want to integrate all these beautiful different perspectives, but nothing can get done because we all have to agree, which actually leaves an ego trap. It leaves room for for blurring the boundary between are we serving a purpose or are we serving our, our own individual egos here? And, and there's nothing wrong, I'm a big fan of serving our own individual egos, just not when we've, we've set up a group thing where we're here explicitly to set those aside for a higher purpose to some degree, not to every degree, right? The egos are still wonderful tools, I wanna to use my ego, but I want it in service of a higher purpose when I show up in a company. At least I do, not everybody does. And if you wanna run a company as a bunch of egos entirely for that, you can do that, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just not what, what I'm interested in and it's not what Holacracy is a tool for. Holacracy is a tool if you want the company to be purpose-driven. And, and that to me is 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 the, the kind of next step beyond these consensus-based models is to say, how do we put some sense of a, a higher purpose, higher calling first by choice, sign up to serve it in ways that honor our own boundaries. It's not about giving up ourselves to the higher purpose. That's also, also something that if anything is a mistake I see sometimes in the consensus communities. They're so into to explicitly what sounds like a higher purpose that they give themselves up to it. And if, if, If some part of you detects that you are not holding your own boundaries, it's gonna assert them in shadowy unconscious ways, and then you get the ego trap again. So it's about navigating that boundary, uh, showing up in a way that I feel whole, and yet I am choosing to be of service here, right? In a simple way, we've done this conventionally for a long time, whenever somebody signs up as a trustee, right, they're there to manage somebody else's assets or something, or board members, somebody else's thing, right? So if we wanna move beyond the, the tyranny of consensus, we still need to honor and integrate multiple perspectives. We need a process that allows us to do that, but that also recognizes sometimes it's not worth the time to integrate more perspectives. So how do we tell the difference? And sometimes your perspective is really about your personal need and it's not appropriate to bring it on the group or slow the group down for it. How do we notice that, right? And this is where it takes both a structure and a practice. Right? And, and to navigate these. What's the difference between you, the, the, the purpose we're here to serve, the organizational purpose and your own self, your own interests. And when is it appropriate to bring your perspective and demand its integration? And when is it not? And, and at the same time, even if it is relevant to the organization, to the purpose, there are times it's not worth it to integrate all. We just need someone to make a decision. So how do we navigate that boundary? Right? Um, and that's really the quest I was on was to develop answers to those questions.
0: Earlier, you talked about um, sort of realizing that the organizational structures we've set up are almost designed to resist change. And, you know, I'm sure there's a conservative part in all of us who thinks that, yeah, that's really what institutions are for, is to conserve the heuristic strategies that our ancestors developed and to prevent them from being lost in the face of novel transitions that we can't really verify. So like, do you think that's appropriate for an earlier phase of culture when technology and society wasn't advancing so quickly? Or are there areas today where we should resist change and areas where we should lean into change?
1: Yeah, I think it's still very appropriate today, even in uh, these, you know, next paradigm organizations or whatever, it's we still need controls. In fact, we need more controls to enable more flexibility and adaptability. This is another mistaken goal that I see kind of people get stuck at in the consensus swamp or green, if we're using a dynamics terms, swamp, whatever, is um, you end up with, with people trying to throw out all structure in the name of being uh, enabling adaptability. And, and it doesn't have that effect. Um, you know, there, there are always natural limits or boundaries in a system and if you don't know, if you're working in a company and you don't know what your limits are, then you don't know what your freedom is. And you're going to spend a lot of time and attention trying to figure out the natural boundaries instead of leading within them autonomously, right? So if you don't know your boundaries, you don't know your freedom. If you don't know what you can't do without talking to someone, then you don't know what you can do without talking to anyone, right? So the irony, a structure like holacracy when people first hear there's no managers and no management hierarchy, which is true they think sometimes I'm saying there's no structure and it's actually the opposite. There's more structure, not less than a management hierarchy. We just get to it differently. It's a different kind of structure and we create it differently. We don't ask managers to break it down because frankly managers aren't that great at creating structure. They're much better at micromanaging, it's much easier. So we we need those things and, and structure means controls. It means limits, it means boundaries. We need these, we need more of these. We need to have them so clear that we can take a stand that says, within this explicit clear structure, within these controls and these limits, you have complete autonomy and freedom. Don't check with anyone, don't build buy-in, don't build consensus, go lead autocratically using your judgment within these limits. If you take that stand, you better have good limits, clearly defined, and they better be flexible because the right limits today are not gonna be the right limits next week or next month or when our environment changes. So it's not enough to get them right up front. We need a process to evolve and adapt those boundaries and limits, right? And and that's, so this isn't about either, or do we have controls and structure and stability and and history, tradition, you know, the value of that, or do we have flexibility? I I don't see these as opposed at all when you get the the framework right there. Each one enables the other, you know? And in fact, even clear structure, you've got to learn what that should be. You want to find the natural structure, the natural limits. To do that, you have to be executing. You have to be changing. You have to be adapting, trying stuff. That's what teaches you the right structure. So these two are not opposed. We think of them as opposed. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of management hierarchies, they are naturally opposed. They're at war, but they don't have to be. They're mutually reinforcing and supportive.
0: There's an American general, Mattis, who I think was briefly Trump's secretary of defense, but I saw him give a speech one time where, he described what he wanted to do in the American military was significantly reduced chain of command, right? Because if somebody approaches the base in Afghanistan with a bomb, you don't really have time to run it up through the generals and have them check with the president and have it come back down. But in order to do that, the local commander on the ground has to have a clear understanding of what the overall mission is, and as well as the trust of his superiors that his understanding is so good that his choices of action will be in alignment with that. But that's really tough, isn't it? Like, how do you craft a mission statement that's clear enough and flexible enough that you can distribute it?
1: Yeah. And to me, that goes back to the evolutionary aspect. That's got to be an ongoing learning process, right? You, You start where you are with whatever the best, clearest thing you've got. And then you do. And you notice when there's a lack of clarity that gets in the way of doing and that drives clarity, mm. right? So, so when I uh, work with a company, we start with whatever purpose th- they can easily get to. You know, We don't need to do a giant purpose discovery session. Uh, maybe a small one is still useful. I'm not, not pushing against that at all, but, but then we do work together and we learn. And somebody eventually runs into something where they're like, this wasn't clear enough for me. I didn't know exactly where to focus here. What was in scope or out of scope of this purpose? So let's get more clear. Same thing with structure. I didn't know if this was outside this boundary we set or inside the boundary. Do I have the autonomy to lead this without talking to people or not? You know, that's what drives clarity. It's, it's the grounded real tensions from trying to work together. Right? And, and, and that's what we miss when we don't have an evolutionary system, uh, process, framework, a meta process that allows us to evolve the boundary and the, the clarity of purpose, uh, right? the clarity of rules, the clarity of roles. All of that needs to be fluid so we can learn by doing because there's no way we can anticipate all this up front and get enough clarity up front.
0: I'm very intrigued by the potential parallels between individual pondering processes internally and social technologies and what they can uh, inform each other about. And it seems like this process that you've clarified around uh, using tensions and leading into tensions to continually upgrade and adapt what the group is doing. seems like it's at the heart of both uh, wise personal pondering, and smarter group adaptation. Yeah,
1: I really resonate with that. It's, it's um, I, I mean, we're used to this internally. Of course, we have this inquiry process. Our, our whole life is that it's, we, we know intuitively, you don't sit your five-year-old down and say, all right, we have to get a clear mission for your life. Let's, let's uncover your purpose and let's define it so that you know how to make the right choices in life, right? That, that, that we know intuitively for ourselves and our children that doesn't make sense, right? We know we need to be in a more learning inquiry process. We, we, we have some, even when we're five, you have some rough sense of what you like, right? You, if you're helping your kids, you notice, what, 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 are they drawn to music? Or are they, do they love math? You know what? And, and you support them in, in experimenting and exploring. And it's through that you start learning more and more and more. They find their path. Right and, and yet then we go into companies and we try to make these big, giant, predictive, top-down plans and define everything up front and clarify everything up front. Or we say, clarity is the enemy. Let's throw it all out and just totally go with adaptability. And, and neither of those approaches are honoring kind of the natural life process that we intuitively know in our own interior experience. right So let's do that in our companies. It just makes so much more sense.
0: I'm intrigued by the... Uh, I mean, there's the role of the authority figure who's willing to give up their authority is very central in this shift that you're talking about. And that must be a very interesting, complex, emotional dynamic for that person, because part of them must say, hey, I'm I'm shirking the burden of leadership. I'm going to pass it on to everyone else. And another part of them is saying, actually, I have the opportunity to take up a different kind of leadership by making this transition. Have you seen that? You know, that must be a complex thing that you've seen people go through.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you've just almost highlighted the shift. It's, it's from the realization that, wait, I'm not giving up power, uh, authority. I, I'm not shirking leadership. Um, and, and this is the reframe and, and the realization uh, and the, the learning curve, the skill building, is how to, how to lead differently, how to use power differently, and in a way that makes room for more people to use power and lead as well. So this is not about the person at the top giving up power. It's about raising power of everyone else in the system right? It's not about that person getting out from behind the wheel. It's about adding a wheel in every other seat in the vehicle, right? Like if that makes sense, it's, and it's not about that person uh, stopping leading. It's about allowing more space for everyone else to lead too. So, and that's what I love about this. As a, as a former CEO in a management hierarchy, I would often feel like I was in this horrible choice where either I would fully bring and use my wisdom, my skill, my experience, I would lead. I would show up big. But when I was big as a CEO, others got smaller, right? Uh, It it left less room for others to lead. They would defer to my judgment, defer to my vision, defer to my leadership, right? They would follow my orders. Even when I didn't mean them as orders, I just meant them as my perspectives, my ideas. Um, And that was sad. So I had this, this double bind, right? Do I bring my wisdom, which I wanted to do? I love my company. I want to bring my wisdom. I want to lead. I want to be big, But when I do that, it's at the expense of everyone else. Or do I dial myself down? Do I show up small? Do I just shove down all of my my perspectives, my vision, my bigness, so that others have more space to lead to? And, And I think that's a horrible double bind choice, and we don't have to choose between those. What I really want, and what I have now, is I still get to be big, right? I get to bring my full leadership. When I have a role, I lead it. Right. I own it. I use my autonomy and it's, I've been told it is a force to be reckoned with the difference is, So does everyone else. Now, now I'm in a framework where my doing that doesn't force others to shrink. It doesn't take space from them, right? It's adding to a pie instead of enlarging my piece of it at their expense, you know, it's, and they can do it too. And and now I'm in a company where everyone does, which is beautiful. Now my loud, big perspectives or whatever are met with theirs. I met with them saying, thanks for your input. I'm going to go a different direction. Do you know how many times as a CEO in a management hierarchy, I would give a strong perspective and have somebody say, thanks for your input. I'm going to go a different direction. Zero, none, never happened. Now it happens all the time. They take in what I say, they think about it and say, thanks. But, you know, this is mine, my thing to lead. I'm going to lead somewhere else. It doesn't, doesn't sway me, right? And, and sometimes it does. And sometimes we have great debates. and But either way, now I'm in a, a, a team full of people that are, are leading and are not not deferring up a hierarchy. And so for me, that's the journey and that's the interior journey. It's it's first recognizing you don't have to dial yourself down. That's the fear of leaders going into this. You don't have to, but what you do have to do is learn a new way to use power and one that leaves others more room, right? And and part of that is ironically, when we leave more space for others to use power, we also leave more space for love to flourish in the organization and, and in the culture. And I love that as well. Um, So now I have so much more love in my business and my life and so much more power. And we all do. Uh, Everyone I work with, which is, uh, I think, the ultimate goal of this for me.
0: The love part is intriguing because you've got this, you're describing this change that takes time that people learn by doing and you end up distributing leadership and autonomy. But it's designed to allow a group to better serve its purpose. Right. And purposes are a little bit neutral, right? Can holacracy be evil? Can I really help my international child trafficking organization flourish with holacracy? Or is there something in the process that mitigates against bad purposes?
1: I I almost look at it like a meditation practice, right? Like, So if you as an individual um, have some horrible things you're pursuing and doing, and you start doing a really deep, like many, many hours a day mindfulness meditation just really sitting with your interiors noticing what's coming up for you distancing yourself from them so you can see them and then consciously work with them and you start doing a bunch of shadow work because you know that's going to probably bring some of that up um, and you start going into that and you start doing a lot of work with your parts your inner parts your shadow work does that directly does it prevent you from going and doing horrible things in the world not at all right does it guarantee you're not going to nope you might still go and do horrible evil things in the world But does it create maybe a counterbalancing force that that could possibly wake you up more to the impact of what you're doing and and maybe help you make different choices or see some of your own shadow in what you're doing in the world? Definitely. And I think Holacracy is a lot like that. Uh, Yes, you could use it to run whatever evil organization you can dream up. Yeah, run it more efficiently, more effectively with Holacracy. But the way it gets to more efficiency, the way it gets to more effectiveness, is by dramatically increasing mindfulness. It's been called a stealth spiritual practice for organization, right? And and it's not just something you go sit on a cushion and do an hour a day, it's something that's integrated into how you work every moment of your working world. So you are in a deep, developmentally catalytic, rich, spiritually rich practice that has all these built-in safeguards for a shadow of any one person dominating the organization. It has to, because we can't just rely on a boss to prevent people's shadow from dominating the organization, which is what management hierarchy does quite well. The boss prevents other shadow. Now the boss's shadow gets to dominate and run over everything, but that's better often than 10 people's shadow dominating and running over everything, which is what we get in consensus companies often, right? Which is often why I think management hierarchy is far superior from a results standpoint to consensus cultures, because at least you only got one person's shadow dominating everything. But if you're not gonna have that power structure, what you need is processes that prevent shadow, that hold up mirrors to shadow and that have some kind of built-in mechanism that allows everyone else to prevent the shadow of any one person, that allows kind of a peer-to-peer uh, uh, sh- shadow protection, right? And Holacracy does. Now, so you put people in that kind of environment and now they're, they're looking in a mirror all the time, seeing their stuff, seeing their shit, right? Can that organization still go and do horrible things in the world? Yeah is, is it less likely? (laughs) Is it more likely that someone's going to say, wait a minute, guys, something doesn't feel right here. (laughs) I think so. Uh, it's developmentally catalytic.
0: Sure.
1: That doesn't guarantee, I mean, development definitely doesn't guarantee integration of shadow, (laughs) but it's also shadow, um, uh, shadow integration catalytic. Is that a a thing? (laughs) It also does that. So between the two, I think it has an impact there.
0: I love that phrase, a stealth spiritual practice for organizations. That's lovely. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, over the last few years, or maybe, I don't know, five or 10 years, whatever that's been, what a lot of people heard about Holacracy was they're trying it at Zappos.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So, um, in the
0: press. You know what's your overall evaluation of that? How did that go? Where is it at? You know, how did thing? You know, could things have gone better? Can they still go better? What worked? What didn't work? What's your What's your take on the Zappos thing at this point?
1: Um, yeah. So, um, well, one just to point out, I love that Zappos is such a big thing in the press, and they're one of thousands, right? Like, it's awesome that like that's what kind of has helped people hear about it. Largely, um, there's some others that people have heard about too sometimes, but. Uh, but they're one of thousands. So, I mean, they're great and one of many. There, uh, the other thing I learned a lot about the press uh, through that whole cycle (laughs) Um, and it's most of it's not positive. (laughs) There was some good press and by good press, I don't mean positive press. I just mean good journalism, right? Like there were were articles that were glowing positive and totally misunderstood everything and clearly didn't do any journalism. The integrity was horrible. And then there were articles that were negative, that that, that that bore no resemblance at all to what was happening in the company. In fact, that was the vast majority. So the first thing I'd say is, just don't believe what you read in the press. Um, I, I had that general life, like uh, uh, you know, uh, mantra or whatever before this. And then once I saw just how bad it was from the other side, it's 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 bad. Um, I mean, it's really bad. I saw you know, the New York Times printed stuff right after I sent them like fact. Facts. Clearly, this is not true. Here's ten references, and it didn't serve their narrative, so they dismissed everything I said and printed something totally false. And I saw that again and again and again and again. So, um, just don't believe what you read in the press. In reality, Zappos has its amazing things going crazy well with holacracy, and its struggles and challenges, as I'd expect for any massive change. This is this is a ten year journey. This is not something you adopt in a quarter, right? And and then it's different in different parts of Zappos as you'd expect. So I look at some teams in Zappos, when I looked at them, they were doing great, you know, beautiful integration, still challenges, but beautiful. And other teams, it was the, the most train wreck of a Holacracy practice I've ever seen, you know, and everything in between. And that's what I'd expect two or three years in, which is the time frame I'm talking about now when I was, I was involved more in looking at this. Hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's normal. You know, you don't radically change the way people relate to power, especially their own power first, right? You don't do that in a year. You do that over 10. and You do that over massive long-term cultural and structural change. And they were on that journey. I, I don't know where they are now. I, I, I suspect they're going to run into challenges with Tony, who was the champion of all this, Tony leaving as CEO and getting replaced by Amazon uh, with a bunch of Amazon execs and then Tony passing away. Unfortunately, I I have no idea what's going to happen to their Holacracy practice. Um, I'm hopeful they'll continue it, but doubtful at the same time with a brand new executive uh, team, you know, at the top coming in, they could very easily slide back to, you know, what what those executives know, management hierarchy. That'd be very easy to do and probably will happen. Uh, But I don't know, maybe not, I hope not. Uh, But at the time before all that, they were doing great. And terrible and everything in between. And, and that itself at a meta level, I think is great. They were in the challenge. They were integrating it and they were building on top of Holacracy, which was ideal. Holacracy is a foundation. They were building really cool new things on top to get more entrepreneurial, uh, you know, business units that, that so many cool stories. Each team was like its own little business and had so much freedom and flexibility to adapt new products and services internally and externally. And and so many good stories of what they were doing. So overall, I look at Zappos as a success case uh, for Holacracy with the challenges because of how they were navigating them.
0: You you had, like all of us, an initial suspicion about the credibility of the media. And now that you've seen it from the other side, you have even more. Uh, Obviously, we live in a pretty uh, degenerate information ecosystem. Where do you go for news? How do you get information? What's your filter and your choosing approach?
1: I I really don't. I just find it mostly irrelevant. Uh, I mean, or if I do get a news source, it's something really direct, specific, and relevant to my world. Like I I do a lot of... uh, Cryptocurrency um, and decentralized technology. Imagine that uh, investment and and uh, and work. So I'll have news sources that are very specific to that. But even then, I'm 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 taking them only as pointers to what to dig into, and not um, not for the, the the story itself. And mostly in the broader world news, I ignore news, um, and I find that serves me really well. Uh, I don't I don't follow news feeds. I have people I hear things from, of course, but I'm skeptical where their sources are. Um, more for me, it's direct. I, I have a great network of people that are directly involved in all sorts of initiatives in the world. Those are the people I want to hear from, the ones on the ground working towards something in a system. Those people reporting their experience, right, that is, is something I trust uh, much more than a journalist. So my general, if it's a career journalist, I'm going to give it almost a zero um, regard. And, and I, I, I feel sad saying that there are good journalists out there. There really are. They're just such a rare breed. And they're in systems that make it really hard to do good journalism, even when they want to. Um, and I've seen that again and again. So I tend to go for frontline direct experience reports over any kind of media journalism at this point.
0: You've been in a kind of a privileged position to observe the internal and external behavior of a lot of social organizations and to compare different styles. And uh, I'm curious what you think about the larger social context in which those businesses and organizations operate. Do you think we, as a society, incentivize businesses appropriately, right? Is there, right? Or do we lean too heavily into shareholder value and get sociopathic corporations, no matter what is going on in that corporation? What's your sense of the you know, the legal and regulatory framework in which businesses exist today. And, you know, how would you skew that for the betterment of the species?
1: Um, I think it's, it's incredibly damaging. Uh, the broader framework we're in is, is not uh, all that healthy. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's, um, so what, what I want to see more and more is, you um, non-coercive, non-aggressive means of getting regulatory uh, uh, feedback processes. So what that means is uh, there's a challenge when we centralize the power to regulate in a governmental entity, that power is there to be taken and it's often captured by the very corporations they're trying to regulate, right? Which, which then becomes, it's, it's subtle and insidious, but damaging. What often happens is those corporations, they, they do promote regulation. They just do it in ways that are really friendly to them and make it really hard to compete with them. And that ironically continue some of the damaging externalities that they're, they're guilty of, right? So what I, I think we need is, is more sophisticated systemic regulatory frameworks. Um, and, and by that, uh, I think one of the best tests is how do we create systems where we don't have to centralize the power to regulate in one entity, but we get so much dynamic feedback loops that we don't need to centralize that power because what we have is is more effective. So for example, uh, let's look at environmental regulation and historically, historical context in in England at the dawn of the industrial age, there was very little in the way of environmental laws or regulations and uh, factories started polluting early factories and then the farmers who were impacted by the pollution downstream in rivers or air quality, or whatever, there's lots of different, different things, they sued them and they won. And that created such a massive economic disincentive that the factories actually couldn't pollute, right? A lot of our environmental pollution of the day was solved until the factories, which had a lot more uh, means, got together and uh, started, you know, uh, donating to the right legislators, uh, lobbying the right legislators. And then they got environmental regulation passed and laws passed that said, okay, well, this amount of pollution is actually okay. And they were within that amount of pollution, so now the farmers couldn't sue. Um, and, and they, they lost that, that disincentive of the economic penalty, right? So what happened here was statutory law took over common law. Common law is the law the courts create, it's an evolutionary legal framework, case at a time as we evolve hearing the specifics of a situation, courts evolve a body of law, it's still the majority of our laws in uh, most Western societies are common law. They're not statutory laws created by legislations. But then the statutory law, the, the legislated law, right, that came in and took over and kind of trumped the common law and allowed pollution. And um, so it, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's the, the very entities that people think are protecting us, are protecting consumers, are, are controlling the corporations, if you dig deeper are often not, they're often controlled by them. Um, it's, it's often through enough uh, levels of indirection that it's hard to directly see the influence, but it's there. So for me, the question is what systemic changes uh, will allow us to get back to far more feedback loops, right? I, I'd much rather trust that factory owner, uh, their, their personal incentives, if they're going to get their asses sued off for a lot of money if they pollute. I think it's less likely that they pollute than if they have a regulatory body that says, well, this much is okay and here's your limits that they can easily influence with the right phone calls, the right donations, whatever. So how do we get back to that? Um, I think more common law, less top-down law makes a lot of sense. Common law is a decentralized evolutionary legal framework. It's it's ideal for dealing with complexity. And right now it's it's not allowed to function in most societies, so we can't trust it. It's not working, right? It's it's There's too much in the way of it. So what do we do? and I have some thoughts, but I don't have time to go into in-depth answers (laughs) there, but uh, suffice it to say for me, I do think our broader systems are broken, but it's not about more regulation. That's not what we need. Um, What we need is different regulatory feedback loops, frameworks, processes, and ones that rely less on centralized monopoly control. I want entrepreneurs who are purpose-driven and conscious to be able to create better regulatory systems, right? And, And we see that, like even just review systems on, on uh, eBay, right? Or whatever. Um, I often trust buying something from a vendor with lots of positive reviews better than I do walking into a local brick and mortar store and buying something, right? Um, because there's a regulatory process there in the feedback system, right? That, that is a regulatory process. It's not a coercive one. It's not aggressive. It has no right to dominate, but it's working. It's useful, Um In a more tangible way, Underwriters Laboratory, similar, right? You can't get your product stocked in most stores today if you don't have a a UL certification that it's not going to blow up and and catch on fire. And that's not forced, but it's effectively forced. No one's going to sell your product uh, without that in any kind of retail environment. So uh, these are just some examples. How do we get more of that?
0: Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, you know, the argument Nassim Taleb is always making about skin in the game. And how if people aren't affected by the consequences of their decisions through feedback loops, then even if they wanted to, they literally couldn't make smart decisions.
1: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And and then you have, there's so many cross incentives. The the regulatory bodies have an incentive to look and be really conservative, even while they're actually serving often the interests that they've been captured by. So you get things like the amount of time it takes to get new drugs to market through the FDA, for example, when... Uh, people are dying. And we saw this with COVID vaccines, actually, they they dramatically slowed down uh, a process. Now, that said, um, at the same time, drugs without the level of validation that 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 goes through can be dangerous, right? And if somebody's dying in a a few months, you know, maybe dangerous isn't the top of their concern, or if they're just a risk taker, and they know the risks. So I I don't want to just have people, you know, handing out drugs that have been untested, that's just as bad, But how do we get a system where there's so much more consciousness and awareness in that and yet people can still access what they really wanna access with a lot of mindfulness so that we allow more experimentation to happen? Because there are some people that will choose voluntarily, fully informed to take more risks than others, right? How do we make sure people are fully informed and can voluntarily choose the risks they take so that society gets more feedback loops in it, right? And, uh, you know, for one, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many cross incentives on this. Uh, it's, and it's, it's the thing we look to to fix it is a top-down solution that the legislature, the regulatory bodies that often make the problem worse. It's too complex to manage top-down in the same way that most modern companies, I believe, are too complex to manage effectively top-down. We need more decentralized, adaptive evolutionary forms of management at a societal level as well, um, we, the complexity we face is too great to, to expect top-down solutions and central planning to work.
0: So then to what degree could um, the uh, holacracy approach to making constitutions for businesses scale to a nation-state constitution? You know, Do you think that would be a viable approach?
1: For me, it's it's asking how we get better nation-states. Um, it's kind of like asking how we get better managers in a, in a management hierarchy. Uh, there's answers to that. And it's almost like, it's not the question that interests me. The question that interests me is how do we change the entire paradigm and obsolete the need for top-down central planners while still getting a better regulatory framework? And that's the question I want for society. And I don't think the answer is just, you know, have legislators doing a better process. I think the answer is how do we distribute authority and control better? How do we decentralize better? So one way to do that is simply take all the functions that government's doing right now and spin them off into purpose-driven, legally holacracy-powered entities, which you can do. You can, there's really cool ways to integrate these constitutions into a legally binding entity structure that is legally purpose-driven and has all the right feedback loops from all the stakeholders, right? which I just love. There's some companies doing this now. So You can take the functions that we currently think of as governmental functions and put them in that kind of structure. And then one step further would be, how do we allow others to compete with them effectively? How do we allow entrepreneurs to actually come up with a, 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 an alternative? So for example, our court system, there's no reason that needs to be mandated as the only court system. There's no reason why two people can't willingly choose to adopt a different court system and a different legal standard. And in fact, that already happens. You can, we can have a contract and agree on a different legal standard, standard, a different choice of law, a different venue, right? So how do we make that more prevalent so that our societal court systems they can be spun off into a legally holacracy-driven entity, and then we can have others that can spring up that have different legal codes. Maybe we experiment with restorative justice instead of punitive justice, or totally different legal legal, uh, standards of of various sorts, whatever processes, uh, and allow that kind of entrepreneurial, uh, purpose-driven competition, if you will, to create alternatives, to create better options, and to, to allow evolutionary selection to happen by keeping the ones that work, that people sign up for, or whatever right so i think a lot of the governmental functions can be s- spun up into purpose driven entities right now that leave more room for experimentation and competition and in fact we're already seeing government entities adopting holacracy now which is really interesting there's there's several agencies um, several in dubai actually now that have adopted holacracy um, there was one in the us uh, that i'm aware of there might have been others uh, several in europe so we're we're seeing this happen already um, at least adopting holacracy for their internal operations i think it's only one step further to then start looking at how do we create a a broader frame around that that organization that has multiple feedback loops in, multiple stakeholders. And Holacracy's process is really well set up to support that and support kind of a meshwork of connected purpose-driven organizations uh, to kind of supplant what we currently see as a centralized monopoly provider.
0: So what about at the other end of the scale? What if you have a family or a couple or a group of friends or people engaged in a small project, are there ways they can uh, implement or play with some of the basic insight structures and skill sets that Holacracy draws on?
1: Um, Yeah, there are actually some households that have used Holacracy to manage the household's work and affairs, right? Like to there's roles to do: dishwasher, you know, financial manager, um, uh, uh, cook, whatever. Uh, you literally could use a and some people have to run your your little family or household. And I, I find those experiments fascinating. Um, I haven't done that myself, although I'm I'm kind of thinking about experimenting with that. Um, I have a personal assistant that does a lot of my household functions, and I do a bunch. My partner uh, does a bunch. So, I, and I'm I'm curious. I, I might experiment with that. Um, I think it'd be pretty cool. Um, so yeah, that's certainly room for that. In fact, one of my friends here in Austin is is kind of creating a whole methodology for how to do Holacracy in that kind of uh, intimate relationship structure um, with a, kind of some standard roles and processes and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, first step for anyone interested is just dive in and get curious and explore it more and see if there might be something there. Uh, even, if, even if you don't use Holacracy's methodology or framework, the language of it, the way of thinking of it can't help but impact your relationship. And I hear this all the time for people that do it in their work. And they say, you know, this, I, I had one woman at Zappos came up to me and said, um, this was after a few months of doing Holacracy. She got really excited. And she said, I finally get it. I get what my therapist has been trying to teach me for the past two years. And, and I wasn't getting it. And now three months into Holacracy, I got it. And it, it was actually about uh, avoiding codependence by owning your own tension and leaving your partner free to own theirs and taking turns, solving your tensions. And, and she had a whole story around it, but it was, it was a beautiful personal development like leap for her into more interdependent autonomy from codependent fusion. And she described it beautifully and two years of therapy didn't get her there. Three months of holacracy did. Right. So, and that's not because she was doing holacracy at home. It's because she was doing holacracy at work and it changed her. And that changed how she showed up at home. And I see that all the time.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of change that um, we really can't assimilate unless we go through a procedure of using it multiple times. Yeah, Um, One of the things that was coming up for me was I used to live in British Columbia and we had a a citizens committee set up to recommend changes to our voting system. They had a certain recommendation, single transferable vote. So we voted on it in a referendum. The two big cities said yes, and all of the outlying rural regions said no. So a couple of years later, we had another one. They made the same recommendation, same referendum, same result. And so there's a certain certain level of privilege in terms of economic status and education and cosmopolitanism that makes you available to the concept of therapy, to the idea of organizational change, to any of these things. And there's a lot of people who, uh, in the world. We just don't have that opportunity and therefore are really anchored in instincts about social organization that we would imagine to be very ancient. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's true. And I think that really points to why we need more freedom for local experiments to happen, right? It's it's sad when we all have to agree or vote. Anytime we're voting on something, something's, something's messed up in the system. Voting is a horrible way to make virtually all decisions. Um, democratic vote. So instead, why, how do we shift to a framework that allows each of those different camps to experiment voluntarily without hurting each other with what they want to experiment. with? And and I'm not saying that's always easy to find out often what you want to experiment with is going to hurt someone else. So that's the system change aspect of this. How do we define a system that allows more decentralization and actually China is, is a great example of their meteoric rise is because they did this well they found a way to do these special economic zones where they experimented with radically different regulatory frameworks in different cities. And that's what, I mean, allowed things like Hong Kong to, to happen from nothing to where it is one of the most successful city-states effectively ever. Um, or Shenzhen, more recently, like a, a generation ago, Shenzhen was a series of rice paddies and one of the poorest regions in, in China. And now it's 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 a world superpower. It's It's uh, got more expertise than anywhere else in the world in its its domain uh, around different aspects of electronics and um, and its its booming growth and that's because they adopted a different legal regulatory framework and china does this in many places you don't hear about the ones that don't work they just don't get copied and the ones that do work get copied so they've done a pretty good job and again, it's within a regime that has its issues. I'm not in any way suggesting let's, let's add the great firewall of China to the U.S. That's not what I'm saying. But this aspect of allowing more local experimentation is something that we can learn in the West from China for sure, right? How do we do that? Um, and Holacracy lets us do that in a company. Let's let every role kind of have enough autonomy to experiment and still deal with the connections, still make sure we're not hurting each other in the interdependence right? You need a framework for that. What What do we do societally to allow the same thing? More local experiments to thrive, right? If, if a group of people near me want to live in a communist commune, great. And if the people next door want to live in a total capitalist uh, you know, market, great. How do we allow all that to happen without either one dominating the other? And then let's see what works and let's learn.
0: The United States uh, is sort of notoriously... Um behind some of the rest of the civilized world and some basic social organization factors. And sometimes people point to the weird tension between federal and state authority in the United States. But that's potentially a situation in which a lot of regional experimentation could go on. But what does it take for different states trying different things to become a mechanism for us to make an overall better conclusion and uptake that information versus just fragmentation and entrenchment? Yeah, uh, the right way to navigate
1: boundaries between the more localized entity, right? Yeah. Like that, that's, um, I think the instinct as people develop and get more systemic complexity, the first instinct is often to try to get more power in the big picture, at the federal level, in the system, because as people develop and have more capacity to see more complexity, they realize this is complex. There's so much interdependency, interconnection. So we have to kind of manage it as one giant whole system because it is one giant whole system. But then there's a point in development, I think, where people realize the fallacy in that, which is that it's too complex to manage that way, right? You need something radically different. And then there's the move back to decentralization with further awareness, further development, where people then realize, oh, this is one complex living system, one complex adaptive system. And that's why we don't want to just funnel everything to the top. Right. Uh, what we really need is a distributed, decentralized power structure, but with the right way of getting interconnection and alignment like the human body. Right. Trillions of cells working together. But that's not because there's one CEO cell at the top. There's one federal government cell. Right. To bossing the others around. And, and and I mean, even in our mental models of the human, we used to think the brain did that. But now we're discovering, no, the human body is an incredibly decentralized system. It's not a you know, central planner in the brain controlling everything at all, right? Um, so I, I think the first thing to just be aware of for, for people is where are you on that journey? If, if you're pushing towards, hey, we need more power up at the top because this is one complex system, beautiful. You're right about the one complex system and we're not gonna get there by having all the control there. We need to find even more sophisticated ways And that doesn't mean just dissolving any coordinating structure. It means finding a better coordinating structure that allows more power at the local level. And I don't even mean state. I mean, city, household, family, you, right? How do we get more power at each individual level, but at the same time, more interconnection, more alignment, more shared responsibility, right? More ability to drive change in the broader system, right? Um, and again, I'm, I'm, my goal here is to surface the question more than provide an answer, but um, there are people Great. doing a lot of really, really good thinking and thought work in this. I recommend if anyone's curious to dive deeper, Max Borders books uh, are really good. His first book is The Social Singularity and his second book is called After Collapse, which is a beautifully optimistic look at uh, first his, his take on why our society is pretty much headed for collapse and why that's a good thing and what can emerge and what we can learn on the other side. So it's a beautiful uh, book, but it is looking at these themes of the breakdown of trying to control complex systems top-down and how do we get more decentralized control that's still integrated and aligned. So um,
0: I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope I'm hope i teasing everyone <laughs> appropriately um, <laughs> to, so if to we take some research and exploration. If we take this approach of uh, maximally distributing authority downscale as much as possible what's left over at the top scales what can really only be handled at the national or the planetary scale I think it's almost wrong it's not uh, it's
1: not that uh, the there's no answer to that it's not that there is something that we have to leave at that level what does it mean to make a decision at that level right. and but it's also not that there's nothing what I'd say is nothing is intentionally decided upon at that level, I don't know what that means. How does the planet make a decision? But there are things that have to go to that level of scale, but they need to be emergent, right? It needs to be the result of lots of micro processes everywhere leading to an emergent result at the whole system, right? It's almost like asking, well, what decisions need to be made at the human whole body level? That's, that doesn't make sense, right? If, if I wanna go for a jog today, I do need my whole system to work together for that. I need my lungs to get more oxygen in, my heart to beat faster, you know, my muscles to move, but I'm not making a, it's not like every cell comes together and votes to run, you know, it's, um, it's different. And and maybe that's not the best analogy because there is a conscious decision to run, but let's look at something else. A viral invader. I have a fever, whatever. My whole system needs to work together to kick it out. I'm not making even a decision to do that but there is an emergent result, right? My whole system works together to achieve something that no one entity decided to do, right? Um, I think when we talk about what decisions need to be made at a national or global or whatever level, one, just recognize national is such an artificial paradigm. I I think that whole thing needs to die. Forget about this artificial boundary of a nation state. What's next? Uh, Global is more useful to talk about. There's a natural boundary there, the planet. Um, there are definitely things that need to be, uh, I, I quote, decisions at that level, but it's not a decision any more than my system fighting a virus by getting sick, right? It's, it's a whole system of emergent result of the right system organization and, and meta framework. So the question for me is, what's the meta framework and how do we get there? And again, I'm going to, if you're interested <laughs> in that, I do have views on that. Uh, Max <laughs> captures those better than I could anyway. Check out Max Borders books for that.
0: Uh, you've referenced voting as a kind of uh, intrinsically insufficient way for um, the right kinds of decisions to get made. So uh, to me there's two sides of that One is why do you see it that way? The other one is given that we have a lot of systems that run on voting, what would be a better voting take like from your systemic view, you know should we be doing ranked choice should we be replacing majority with you know averages of gradient assessments or you know, do you have a feeling about voting reform and, and also what's the real fundamental problem with the vote?
1: So, um, a couple of things. Um, I do think there are ways to improve voting. Absolutely. Uh, letting people delegate or give up their vote to someone else, I think would, would instantly, uh, create some really interesting, fascinating opportunities for society, um, so I think there are ways to do that. And that's not where my interest is. And that's not because I think it's, it's useless or anything. It's just my own passion goes towards much deeper, more foundational systemic change. And how do we get that? And I don't think we're gonna get there by improving voting. I think improving voting is improving something within the current frame. And there are lots of reasons to improve things within the current frame. People are suffering because of the current frame. And if we can make quick improvements and we can get them done, great. So I, I applaud anyone working within the system current frame to change it. And that's not where my energy goes. So I don't have, I don't spend a lot of time and energy looking at how do we, what specific uh, interventions would improve voting and how I've done a little bit there. But, um, but I do think there are some, I, I think I'm much more interested though, in, in the fundamental limits of it. Right. And it's a pointer when we have to vote on something and the majority gets to force their will on the minority. We have a fundamentally aggressive system that for me, begs the question, why? Why do we need the majority to force their will on the minority? And, and there are often reasons, there's answers to that, you know? But, but how do we make those answers obsolete, right? Like, um, if, we are, <laughs> if we are voting on, on you know, um, things like, oh, I don't know, um, uh, uh, what, what value system are we going to push in our, into our laws on everyone, you know? Should we allow or disallow drugs? I don't know, whatever. To me, that goes to, wait a minute, why do we have to vote to push some group's values on others? How can we create a society that lets each group have their own values and, and make their own choices as long as they don't hurt anyone else in the process? right? So I, 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 when I hear these things, my head doesn't go to, how do we get voting to be better and, and reflect the will of more people? I don't care if it's a majority. I don't care if it's 90%. I, you can have 90% of people voting to do something absolutely horrifically uh, immoral and unethical in my view that doesn't make it any more right, right? Just because the government with broad popular support in World War II decides in the U.S. to imprison forcibly uh, all of the Japanese Americans doesn't make that right, right? Just, I mean, that that's, so to me, it, it's it's not about how do we reflect better the will of the many. It's about why do we have to, Impose the will of the many on anyone, and how do we change the system to allow us to live voluntarily, peacefully, cooperatively, even under radically different um, worldviews? So it's
0: right? not so much a critique of of voting as a practice, so much it is a critique of majoritarian uh, assumptions about social organization.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and that said, there are some cases where I don't have a better answer than voting. Right? Like I, I'm not trying to to say there's there's never a good case and. And there are some cases where the voluntary thing for everyone to do is say, hey, you know, we have difference of opinions. Let's just vote. And that's fine when that's consensual, when everyone's getting together and saying, you know, okay, cool. Well, I'm happy to defer this decision to the will of the majority. Right. But, you know, going back 100 years in the U.S., does. The, the, the local black guy wanna defer to the will of the majority of the white people in the South around him to decide what rights he has, right? Probably not, that's not a consensual voting, you know? Um, so to me, that's, uh, that, that's really the question. If, for example, I, I still use, there's still voting in my company on, um, at the board level. We, we vote for uh, a representative to represent the investors at the board. And that's consensual. Anyone who buys equity in my company knows that, right, there is a, a vote. Now we have other board roles too that hold our purpose, that are, are appointed through different mechanisms. But in this case, we have an investor representative that's chosen through a majority vote. And anyone who's signing up who's buying equity knows that. They're, they know what they're getting into and they've consented to that being the best bet. I, I would love to find a better answer, but I don't have one. Um, somebody needs to make the decision and we don't want to have tons of representatives there. I, I need, you know, a, a small minority on that board. So again, there are choices uh, and maybe there's a better way to do that voting. I'd love to find one. Um, but to me, it's, yeah, it's not voting per se. It's the system underlying voting, um, especially at the, the societal level. Um, it's often a way of, of majority pushing their will on minority or actually sometimes worse, minority pushing their will on majority. Um, and it just makes me wonder why, why are we organizing this way in the first place? Why do we need that?
0: It's such an ancient and comprehensively practiced strategy you know the idea of a small group of people who does a show of hands or a verbal assent or something like that we not only does that maybe make sense in small ancient human communities but we all do it you know from being little kids or we think of that as a more sophisticated moment let's let's vote on what show we're going to watch on tv tonight rather than me just telling you so we practice that majoritarian, simple and kind of binary, like, yes, no, that always bothers me about voting. Right. I know if Kellogg's cornflakes wants information about how much I like their product, they at least give me a, a five degrees of intensity to choose from. <laughs> Not just, do you want this guy or do you want this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. Totally. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it is very culturally ingrained, right? Like, so there's, there's a myth in our society, a mythology that, um, the will of the majority through democratic voting confers legitimacy, uh, on a government. And, and let's just recognize that's a, that's a, a collective myth, right? And I don't mean myth as in it's wrong fundamentally. It's just a shared mythology in the same way that at one point it was the divine right of kings was our shared mythology. The king has legitimacy because God has chosen the king, right? So the king has legitimacy. Divine right is our legitimation function of government. Before that, it was might makes right, it was the legitimacy function. Of course, the warlord leads. He took over, right? He's, he's the strongest. So our current myth is the myth of democratic legitimacy. And and um, and it's such a strong myth. It's enculturated very young in our societies, most of the Western world, very, very young. It's very hard to break out of. It's, you start challenging that and you're hitting people at a visceral level of what gives them stability, a sense of safety in the world, a sense of, justice of rightness right and and this is why that myth is what leads people to, to to try to use government to solve problems right um even when if we really looked at it objectively government's actually creating these problems or, or or is captured by the entities again that they're trying to regulate the problems away from you know so do we really want that to be our legitimation function or is there a better one right is there a next one what's next and there will be a next, right? Like that, that evolutionary trend has so far, we're, we're not still in divine right of Kings, right? There, there will be some next legitimation function that we will look back on this one of the will of the majority confers legitimacy of government through democratic vote as just as silly in a way, or just as, as um, mythological as the divine right of Kings or anything before that. Um, and, and again, shared myths are useful. I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but I am questioning, is it still right for our time or is there something next? Is there, is there a better one? Um, and in, do you really want to hold that one too? You know, uh, the, the will of the majority has done some awful things in, in even recent modern history, really awful things in a lot of different places. Is that really what we want to place legitimacy in? Or do we want to have a different ethical code? Do we want to put legitimacy in something deeper, something more?
0: Here's um, a pretty abstract question, which is, what's the difference between consent and assent, like between buying into something that you're working on and just agreeing to go along with what the authority or the group has said?
1: Um, I don't know what immediately comes up to me is just the voice exit loyalty model. If you're familiar with that, it's, it's such a simple little, little frame. I, I forget. I always forget the guy that created it. Um, uh, but it's, it's uh, basically if if you are concerned about what's happening in a system, a society around you, uh, this could be a company, it could be society, it could be a club, a social group, whatever uh, you have three basic choices. And then a fourth was added later. There's uh, voice, which is, using your voice through the established process to try to change it. This is like voting, right? Let's go vote. Let's go help others vote. Let's, let's post to Facebook and try to convince others, right? Let's use voice to try to change the system to something better in our view. There's loyalty, which is I'm going to go with it. I don't agree with it, but you know what? This is a just legitimate system and I want to support it. So I'm going to get, get in line. You know, I'm going to be a good company, man, a good soldier, uh, or in society, I'm going to be a loyal patriot, even if I don't totally agree with the the what's happening. Right, that's loyalty. Uh, and the the third one is exit, which is I'm leaving this system. I'm not going to try to change it with voice. I'm not going to be loyal to it with some disagreement with with loyalty. I'm going to leave it and choose a different system, a different society, a different company or whatever. And the fourth one added later was neglect, which is. I'm not, it's kind of like loyalty. I'm not going to use my voice to try to change it, but I'm also not really going to do my job. I'm just going to be in it, neglecting it, you know, kind of disempowered within. Um, and then I think we can, I love that model looking at society, right? Looking at societal changes. We were, if we turn back the clock, right? There was, there was this era a couple generations ago of loyalty where, you know, this is World War II era. People were loyal. They might not have agreed, but the general dominant cultural mode was loyalty. It was be a good citizen, you know, get in line, don't rock the boat. It was that way in companies, in the country, in the U.S. at least. Um, and then we shifted to this age of voice, right? We had protests, the Vietnam War era, there were protests, the hippie movement. There were people using their voice to try to change the, the system. Democracy became a much more loud thing. And, and I think we're in a sea change to a different era now, an era of exit, an era where people are saying, screw this system. You know, I'm going to move to a different jurisdiction or I'm going to try to create a different jurisdiction where I am. That's happening more and more. We're seeing seasteads showing up. Uh, Forget this. I'm going to go create my own government on the sea. Or we see more and more uh, experimentations of radically different cultures and societies, even in bubbles within current ones, where people have exited the dominant one and are trying to build a new one, um, a startup society, uh, 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 something different. Um, And I think more and more that's going to be possible without having to move. Right, more and more, there's there's an open source legal framework now, Ulex, where people can opt out of our broader legal societal framework voluntarily by agreeing in all their contracts with people to use Ulex, the open source legal code, as something very different. Right, that's a way of you're not moving, but you're opting out of the dominant societal court system and into one that I'm much more excited about. Um, I would love any of my contracts to use Ulex over the broader broader legal codes of Texas where I live. Um, so. I think we're we're in this mode where instead of trying to change it, more and more we're seeing people shift to exit. and I think that's an incredibly positive thing for society because exiting giant monolithic systems is how we get new novel systems that can experiment and find better ways of whatever we're talking about.
0: I'm kind of half trying to imagine what it would look like for the Catholic church to adopt holocracy,
1: <laughs> because
0: there's right there are um, systems and very often religious and spiritual systems that seem very based on the idea that the hierarchy itself is somehow the functional thing. That if you don't have uh, faith in the absolute perfection of the person at the top, or even in a sense of like an actual community where somebody has some special qualities that they want to transmit, that transmission is talked about in terms of surrender and submission and obedience. It's a very strange kind of take. And uh, I wonder about, you know, what's the difference between a savior and a coach when it comes to empowering people? Yeah. Well,
1: okay. So I I, I talk about this a lot (laughs) in my work with Holacracy, the whole movement uh, in companies today towards let's empower people has a, a big fundamental problem, which is if you need someone else to empower you, What does that say about you and the system you're in? It says you're fundamentally disempowered to begin with, and you're in a disempowering system. If you are needing to wait for someone else to empower you, you've lost the empowerment game already, right? What what we need if we want more empowered workforces, more empowered companies, we don't need bosses who empower others. That's the mistaken goal. What we need is a system that leaves more space for everyone within to find and use their own power, right? We need an empowering system, an empowering framework. What the boss can do is not empower others. What the boss can do is take the power they have in a system that gets in the way of empowerment and seed that power into a fundamental systemic framework. Right, Holacracy is one, one option, but a framework that allows people space to find and use their own real power. For me, there's, there's a big, big shift there. So um, that's one thing I'd say about the whole empowerment thing. You don't empower people. You can't empower people. People empower themselves. The system around them can make it easier or harder for them to do that, right? It can, in fact, crush it violently in some systems, right? Or it can eject them if they try, or it can make it really easy. It can encourage them. Holacracy makes it really easy. It doesn't guarantee it. It can't. You cannot push people to be empowered. (laughs) It's a fundamental oxymoron. But what you can do is make it really easy and hold up mirrors every time they're playing victim, right? Uh, You can't force them out of it, but you can hold up a mirror to it, help them see it, help everyone around them see it and then make it really easy for them to find the levers they can grab and pull and use to exercise power, right? That's what Holacracy does. It doesn't force bosses to empower people. So there's that. And then uh, you also added the element of uh, with the church. Sometimes there is some leader, right? That's, uh, and, and there's an interesting um, there's a polarity here on one hand, the leader, whether we're talking church or company or whatever founder, they may have some really deep wisdom, (laughs) Right? So there's truth in that, uh, potentially, especially when we talk about company founders, there's some truth in that, you know, that guy at the top of the traditional hierarchy has some real deep wisdom. If you're Apple, you don't want to write Steve Jobs out of power, right? They tried that. It didn't work well in their early days, right? Um, so, but, but that doesn't mean you need to defer all of your power to them as the one true voice of everything. You know? Maybe Steve shouldn't be choosing their accounting standards. Right? For example, even if he should be designing their products autocratically, it's about getting that person the right roles and allowing everyone to find power in their roles. Right? And, and when you have a founder-led organization and that founder has deep domain expertise and wisdom or deep vision, they need power. You don't want to strip it away from them. But that doesn't mean they need blanket power to do anything and to boss everyone around. Right? In my company, I'm the main guy that evolves the definition of holacracy right? And that's appropriate on me. That, that is one of my main powers. But I don't have the power to decide what new markets we're going to open our trainings in. That's not my expertise. That's not my wisdom. I have ideas and thoughts on it. And I'm very vocal and loud with my ideas. And I certainly give my pitches to the people in charge of that, but I'm not in charge of that. And I shouldn't be, right? But damn, if you try to strip the power away from me to evolve Holacracy itself, we're losing one of the organization's greatest assets. There's a reason I kind of channeled this thing. And there's a reason I have 20 years of history with this. right? Uh, and so I, I think when we talk about these kind of founder power holders, that's why we can't just talk about stripping their power away. That's a false uh, a goal. It's, a, it's a, a dangerous goal. It's, it's more about differentiating their power, unfusing them from everything in the organization and all power use and getting clear, differentiating out, here's the power they need. Let's get them that role. And here's the power other people should have. Let's get the other people those roles. That's what
0: I does. I like that. <laughs> this is a, a virtual face-to-face medium. And it makes me curious about you know um, how much face-to-face, but even more so embodied showing up with each other is important to the holocracy process, right? Like I'm, I'm imagining that if people are have distributed authority and they're taking these different roles and they're bringing uh, their processing of tensions to each other, and that's how somehow getting decided about that that might work better with people who actually work in the same building as each other and can have these conversations in a multidimensional way versus say doing it through email or something like that. Is there, is there how much does the dimension of interpersonal contact play into this? I, I, this
1: is very apt for the world today, right? I think we have so many companies that have been used to being able to manage a whatever method by walking around and seeing each other and talking face-to-face. And they're now suddenly thrust into this world of virtual working and all that. Um, My company has been virtual since the beginning. We've been 15 years now, you know, almost uh, totally virtually. Um, So for us, that wasn't really a change. I think a is more needed uh, in a virtual world just because clarity is more needed. Alignment's more needed. It's harder, right? It's harder to get clarity of who does what when you're not able to just walk around the office and overhear stuff. It's harder to get alignment with people and to, to, come to consensus with people if that's what you're doing when you're virtual and you're not seeing them all the time, you don't have the same bonds, which means maybe we should have a system where we don't need to come to consensus on everything in the first place, which is what a Holacracy does. It makes it more clear who leads what, what do we expect from each other? How do we align? Where's the interdependence? And where's the independence? Um, that just makes virtual working way easier. So uh, it's I really do think that the the face-to-face is useful, right? You get a lot out of that. I miss it. My company's virtual, um, but we do these regular in-person gatherings. And during COVID, we stopped them for a year and that sucked. Um, and I think virtual is perfectly workable. I think more companies are going to stay virtual now. Honestly, I think that'll be a mass change. Um, and I think that drives more demand for social technology to get more clarity and more alignment.
0: Okay. <laughs> um What's the role of competition? Because there's an old idea that, uh, you know, individual and intergroup competition will produce the invisible hand of the market that will do smarter things than any of us could figure out to do. On the other hand, the type of social technology you're describing doesn't sound like these distributed authorities are terribly competitive with each other. What, what's the role of competition in making a healthy, smart group? I um. So I I look at it more as
1: experimentation, right? Running different experiments is useful. When we take a competition frame, at least conventionally, it's often thought of as like more just against. Um, When we take a, hey, let's run different experiments frame, I I think it's easier to look at the higher integration, right? I, I want the world having different experiments in everything, different experiments in cell phones. Which one do I want? Let's run some different experiments. I can choose the one I like best. We might call that competition. And sure it is. But from an evolutionary angle, what we're doing is allowing a selection process to work with lots of different experimentation. And I think we can have that in a company, right? That kind of different experimentation. And when we hold it that way, we're we're all still serving the same higher purpose here. (laughs) And we can cooperate as well. In fact, I ran into a study a while ago about this. CEOs of companies of, quote, competitors that regularly shared lessons and supported each other tended to both do better and outperform their other competitors who didn't. Right? So to me, this isn't an either or, and it's not a competition versus cooperate. It's just let's run different experiments and let's learn together. We don't need to be at each other's throats. And yet it can also be fun to compete, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's, let, let's win. Let's, let's just realize we're playing a game when we do that. Right? And I love games. It's fun to play a competitive game
0: as long as you know it's a game. Uh, years ago, I read a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. that was very stimulating in terms of thinking about group intelligence. And they, they talked a little bit about if you taking a bunch of experts, um, seeing what their sort of collective opinion on something was, and then letting them all go to a conference where they talk to each other, and then checking with them again afterwards. And sort of their collective wisdom has gone down because they've flattened the variations between their own perspectives by being in that conference. At the same time, They proposed that if you sort of added, added one random person to that collective who had no similar background, that that introduction of diversity would then sort of help the group be wiser again. So I'm wondering what you think about the danger of homogenization of perspectives, but also the role that just formal diversity might have in making a group function well and be smart.
1: To me, this points to the the need for loose connections uh, in addition to tightly coupled networks, right? So if you have a a, a tight coupled group that's all sharing perspectives and they don't have any kind of loose connections that are are more connected to outsiders, you have the downside, the danger of homogenization. On the other hand, if you've got just a group that's barely connected to each other, you don't have the benefits of the the group, the learning, the whatever. So um, I love to see and create when possible groups that, that have these like, these almost outlier members that are, are really connected to some other network that can kind of act as the the, the transmission vehicle for new thinking, different thinking between groups. Um, and I love those people when I find them in my network, uh, you know, and I, and I try to maintain that. Like um, if you look at even just my Facebook feed or whatever, the radically diverse viewpoints are, are really dramatic, you'll see like a majority of like, this is, you know, most of people, but, but then you'll see these, these posts that are people that are radically different thinking from completely different worlds and networks. And I love those people in my, my network. They help me avoid groupthink echo chambers, right? They keep me fresh. And I seek that out. I want to spend more time. I, I want uh, to connect and intermingle myself with people from radically different views and, and backgrounds and, um, I, I love what that does, and it, I love what it lets me bring to my tight groups. Because now I can bring some of that diversity. Um, anyway, that's where my head goes. <laughs>
0: Great. <laughs> how has um, how has Holacracy evolved since your first iteration, and where has it still got to go? What are its current limitations that you want to get beyond?
1: Yeah, um, it's been evolving a lot. So we actually version control Holacracy, right? So we um, uh, it's run like an open source like operating system or whatever where anyone in the community using it can feedback suggestions to change it. Um, and then we version stamp it. We, we have a whole community process to evaluate potential changes, discuss and integrate. Uh, and we're, we're actually about to release within weeks now um, Holacracy 5.0, which is the next major version, many years in the making of Holacracy. And it's integrated literally hundreds of different little changes and some big changes. And it's one thing I love about it. It's it's it, I can't even tell you one thing. There's so many things. I, can, I mean, I can name one thing. We've made it way easier to adopt. Version 5.0, we've kind of broken it down so you don't have to adopt all of it all at once, which is a huge change There's now a more modular approach where you can adopt kind of one chunk at a time. And that, that solves, I think, one of the biggest concerns and and real obstacles people have had with the former version 4.1 of Holacracy, where it's almost impossible to do that. So it's all or nothing. Um, So, you know, for example, and there are many, many other changes in there. And, and that's one of the things I love. Holacracy brings evolution inside an organization and creates an evolutionary system and it itself, is the result of an evolutionary system at a larger scale where everyone using it is finding the edge cases, finding the the things that aren't quite as well, driven from real grounded feedback of users, not just ideas and theory, right? It's really grounded change from people doing this every day and running into obstacles or running into opportunities and feeding them back. So as of the release of 5.0, we don't, we, our list of like what we've noticed and want to change is very, very small because we've just integrated it all. If you had asked me a year ago, I had a list of 100 things. You know? <laughs> and I'm sure over the next few years, we'll have more things and we'll have version 5.1 or 6.0 or whatever's next uh, coming out. But as of now, we have a massive release. 5.0 has been many years in the making and has solved a lot of the, the issues with Holacracy from the past.
0: That's very exciting. What's, um, what's different other than this modular introduction approach?
1: Um, So that's a huge one. Another one also in the category of making it easier, um, readability. The the rule book of Holacracy, which is what we're talking about evolving, is the Holacracy Constitution. That's the open source document. That's the one that all the companies using Holacracy use. Version 4.1, if you run it through like a reading comprehension uh, score uh, system online, it's it's something in the like graduate level uh, reading comprehensibility. The new version is early high school. Right. So it's just so much easier to understand the rules now. So much easier to like, just pick it up and kind of get a sense of it, which also means it's easier to translate, which is a big issue for us because it's used all over the world. Um, so uh, that's another one. It's just simpler. Um, there's other ones. There's some aspects, um, where we found there was just a, uh, something that became disempowering, um, or, or made it difficult to find and use power that we fixed. So little thing like, um, in uh, version five, there's a new way for allocating resources, for spending money, budgets. In version 4.1, the, the default method was a little more like a management hierarchy. And in 5.0, there's a method that allows, still allows controls and, and all that that's still there. You're not going to have reckless spending, but, but it allows people to really use more judgment and find more power and s- take a stand in front of their colleagues and say, in my role, I intend to spend this much money of our collective budget and then go do it within certain constraints, right? So it's just more little things like that. Um, And there's, again, tons of those, um, which I love. It's just, it's better. It's the result of years of evolution.
0: (laughs) Have there been experiments to um, gamify these processes, you know, like a board game or a computer game or something that people could go through to get a a taste of what it's like and, um, you know, adapt themselves to the skill set.
1: Yeah. So the best way to get a taste of Holacracy is uh, go see it in practice. And if, if you know anyone in a company doing it, some companies will allow people to kind of take a little tour and watch, see how they work. Uh, but uh, for most people, the best bet's probably either uh, go to a training or a workshop and there's online ones that make that cheap and easy. Now uh, there's short workshops that just give you a little taste And then we we have a longer training if you want to really dive in and experience all the different methods and how it all works and hangs together. So you can find those trainings online. Or if you want to experience it in the context of your real organization, you can take a taste by bringing in a Holacracy coach to run you through Holacracy's processes with some of your real tensions and see how it creates structure and clarity and alignment in a real meeting process with your real issues. And you don't have to commit to doing Holacracy. You can still use for a day or two or whatever, to solve some of your real issues and get a taste of a new way of working. And there are coaches all over the world that will do those in person. We have a whole network of them. So reach out to us. We'll put you in touch with a local one or there's virtual options. Uh, so again, reach out and we'll get in touch with someone appropriate. Uh, those are the best ways to really see it in action.
0: Terrific. Uh, I heard you say somewhere that Holacracy might not be the right strategy for you know, a... a um, a time-limited organization that was just going to pull off some simple task, and they were going to sell it in a year or two or something like that, where they don't have the time, energy, and resources to invest in the process of unfolding themselves into a holocratic organization. So then, I'm also curious about um, what types of people might not be good for this. Like, who do you, who have you seen typically? not work well, exit from the process, you know, it's hypothetically, it's potentially developmental and good for everyone, but there must be types of people or people with certain kinds of contexts for whom it just doesn't work, at least at the moment. And they have to get out of that context.
1: Yeah. So for me, the big question is, is it worth the cost of change, right? Right. Because this is, you're bringing in a massive new paradigm. There's a cost of the change. I, I do believe Holacracy can handle whatever you've got in your organization better on the other side of the change. Um, in that it's just broader than management hierarchy. If you could even recreate management hierarchy perfectly within holacracy, that's that's possible. It, it transcends and fully includes. If, if management hierarchy is the best way to run part of the business or one of the functions, you could totally do that. Um, it just rarely is. <laughs> um, so in that sense, holacracy adapts better. But but getting there doesn't mean that's always worth it, right? In the cases where it's not worth it to me are you are looking to build, grow and exit and sell this business really quickly in a couple of years. If that's your growth profile, maybe it's not worth slowing down or it's not even slowing down. It's a lot cause it can help you speed up but it's, it's still a, a distraction from just the rapid fire. Let's just use the conventional model that everyone's familiar with to build, grow and sell and get out of it. Um, So there's that. Uh, Holacracy is better for organizations and entrepreneurs taking a longer term time horizon and trying to set up their company to be a sustainable, long-term, successful entity well beyond the next year or two, right? Um, So that's one. The other is if you have a lot of like really difficult cultural problems, like there's a toxic culture, um, it might not be the best time. There's not, might not be enough safety, psychological safety for people to do the work needed and there's a shift needed to something else. So I'm not just saying you have to do cultural work first. If you have a perfectly average culture, you're fine to do holacracy and let it change the culture. But if you have one that is shadowy, dysfunctional, toxic, like you know, lack of safety, that may not be the right time to try any kind of massive structural power structure change that requires people to go through some some interior journeys. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then uh, if the leader who's bringing it in isn't completely committed and isn't willing to change themselves first, it's the wrong wrong mechanism, the wrong approach that, that, that it won't work. Um, so there's that. That person needs a, a deep level of commitment and commitment to self-transformation and to being part of the journey, not just telling others to go do holacracy. That doesn't work. So there's that. And um, on the other side, it, it's it's broadly applicable. There's no industry or type of company that that isn't right for it. Uh, it's used in Radically diverse industries, radically diverse types of workers, types of companies, types of people, cultures all over the world—it's—it's it's really diverse that way. Uh, but those are some of the factors that would say maybe this isn't the right right thing. Oh, and the final one is if you're in a total crisis mode, um, you know, you're—you're you're, when COVID hit and suddenly revenue got cut in half or down to zero for some organizations. Maybe not the time for holacracy. On the other hand, if you're in crisis mode chronically. It might be exactly what you need. <laughs> if you're chronically in crisis, Holocracy is maybe the solution. But if you are in a shock crisis because of an external one-time change that you're adapting to, maybe do that first.
0: You, uh, you mentioned uh, integral theory. You mentioned sociocracy. I'm wondering what your other sources of inspiration have been.
1: Yeah. I mentioned GTD, Getting Things Done. That was a Mm -hmm. big one uh, for me. Um, Barry Oshry's work. uh, He's an author that isn't all that well-known, but he should be. (laughs) His work's amazing. Um, I recommend his books, Barry Oshry, uh, Seeing Systems and Leading Systems. That was some of my early influence. Um, And um, I mean, so many more. It's hard to to know which ones to point out. Uh, There were some typologies that were instrumental in trying to create a framework or a system that integrated individual differences and allowed different energies to all show up and contribute without biasing towards one. That was some of uh, Linda Barron's work. Uh, you can find all these in the history on our website too. I give references to these and, and others or in my book in the references section.
0: Um, thinking over everything you've done, and, and this is this is too big a question, I know, but <laughs> all the stuff you've done and worked on and all of these sources that you've drawn from, how would you distill that down to like, what's the single most basic principle of making a group better and smarter? What's the, if, if it was only one thing that they could hold in their mind to try to work on, what would that thing be?
1: <laughs> um, you know, I come back to just consciousness and uh, make a conscious choice. Notice your assumptions as best you can notice your, your biases. Um, I, I I rarely tell people just, you know, go do a I, I a message I feel much more comfortable with is consciously question. How do you want to fundamentally organize? How do you want to organize power in your company? Management hierarchy is a perfectly valid choice. Is that the right one for you? There are times it might be, right? Make a conscious decision. What assumptions, what biases, what, what's, what's under there as much as you can just notice them. Um, to me, you know, the, the journey of consciousness is is so tied to the journey of being more effective in whatever we do in life, um, uh, better leader of organization, better whatever. It's um, just notice.
0: That's. Uh, very nice sentiment uh, from which to segue into the end, I think. <laughs> Even though this is terrific, I would easily talk to you for a few more hours, but I don't know how long we can expect people to watch. <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> I also have another meeting very shortly. So <laughs> okay. I, uh,
0: I really appreciate uh, the balance uh, of dynamics that you bring to your answers and your ability to be there with your own answer to each of these questions. And I think this is a it's a really important conversation because it's not just good enough that the more evolved, wiser people in society have more control. We have to set up systems that are somehow analogous to being a wiser, more developed person. And I see you working on that project. And I just want to appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for helping us get the word out and just spread uh, the consciousness that there are other ways to organize and, yeah, we covered some really fun territory here. I hope your your viewers have uh, followed us to this this far and enjoyed it. <laughs>